We'll hear argument now on number 99-2047, Anthony, Anthony Palazzolo versus Rhode Island. Mr. Burling. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. According to local land use regulations, there are two uses to which Mr. Palazzolo's property can be put, residential and a beach club. In 1983, Mr. Palazzolo applied to fill all 18 acres of his property, which, have made, which would have made the property suitable for either use. When that was denied, he applied for a lesser scaled-back permit application to fill 11 and a half acres for a beach club. Now, when you say local regulations, that's the zoning authority of, of the town? That is correct, Your Honor. And what is that zoning authority called, the zoning board? Or? That is the town of Westerly's zoning authority, Your Honor. All right. I just want to ask a few questions to make sure — uh, that we take this case on the assumption, and that both parties agree on that assumption, that the only development that would be allowed is perhaps a, a single residence on the high, high ground. Um, is, so far as the 83 uh, denial, it seems to me that that was the skimpiest kind of showing. I, I don't see any zoning authority accepting uh, a proposal to just fill the uh, the marsh without any a further specified use. So I don't, I don't really count that uh, very heavily in your favor. So far as the Beach Club is concerned, that's a, a bit different. Uh, do you read the um, opinion uh, by Judge Israel and then the opinion by Judge Williams and the opinion by the Supreme Court of Rhode Island, as, as, and particularly the latter, as proceeding on the assumption that the one lot with the residents on the high ground would be the only permitted development? Do we take the case on that assumption? That is correct, Your Honor. We know from the reasons given by the Coastal Resource Management Council, CRMC, for its denial of the 1985 application, that it found that a beach club would not serve the compelling public interest standard that the CRMC has for approving applications. Was it that beach club or any beach club? Because that beach club was just about 11 acres of paving with a portage on and a, and a, and a dumpster and a couple trash cans. Uh, can, can, is the state going to tell us, oh, well, we might have approved some other use? They Are we going to hear that from the, from the state, do you think? I do not believe they will, Your Honor, because they have never made that allegation or statement previously in this case with regard to any kind of beach club use being allowed. Now, this beach club, which, by the way, was unpaved and did have very minimal structures, Mr. Palazzolo believed that that would uh, have less of an environmental impact than having structures with sanitation facilities and things of that nature. We know quite clearly what uses he could and could not do with the property. Uh, at trial, for example, it was brought out that no residential structures of any kind would meet the public purpose requirement of CRMC. I thought that the record showed that the Rhode Island courts concluded that Mr. Palazzotta could have built, quote, at least one house on the upland portion of the property. The CRMC director testified he might have built as many as four and that the residual property would have had a value of about $157,000 if given as open land. Your Honor, if I may try to clarify the record a bit on that, we do readily admit that the state has said that it would gladly allow Mr. Palazzolo to apply for one home site 
on the small upland area on the property, a uh, 40 by 90 foot, 40 by 80 foot turnaround, 50 by 80 foot turnaround, excuse me, at the end of a 1500 uh, foot uh, roadway. That will be allowed. Uh, there was some initial testimony at trial regarding other wetland uses, uh, excuse me, other upland uses perhaps, but later on in trial that became clear that any other upland on this property could only be reached by filling wetland to access it. And at trial, the CRMC executive director made it quite clear that there were uh, no residential structures could meet the compelling public purpose. I think we're going in this case on they, the — They wouldn't let you build the house or not? Uh, he, they, I thought — when the te- was there testimony at trial that you could have built up four houses? The CRMC director said — I don't have the exact words, but I take it — he might be able to build as many as four. And later on in testimony by CRMC's uh, biologist showed that to reach any other upland on the property — wetlands would have to be filled, and that would not be in the public interest. It would not meet the compelling so public interest. There's a finding by the, that, that you, you couldn't build for. In other words, they, 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 they're — what I'm trying to get at is you're saying that the value of the property was reduced to near zero. To 200,000. Some, some or that what you think is equivalent to Lucas zero, because it might have been worth three million. All right. We we'll have a record here in findings and all kinds of argument about — what the value of the house would have been or the value of the place would have been. How do we know? I think, Your Honor, the best way of telling is looking at the uh, state's opposition to the petition for cert, where they say in there that they would gladly allow Mr. Palazzolo to build a single-family home. Twice in the brief in opposition, they acknowledge that the CMRC would have, would have approved a single home site, uh, which would have netted greater proceeds, i.e., $200,000 at less risk. They, they say that on page 4. And again, at St. Ni- 19, 19 they say specifically the council would be happy to have petitioner situate a single home, thus allowing petitioner to realize $200,000. So I had, uh, you know, I had thought that was not in the case when we took it. That is I might correct, not have Your taken Honor. it had I thought it was in the case. Your Honor, I couldn't agree with you more. Is it also the case that in order to, to build more, whatever the more might be, beach house, uh, residential development, whatnot, there would have to be filling of the wetland. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct, Your Honor. Now, what is the significance of the finding? And I think it was in Judge Israel's uh, opinion, but I could be wrong about which one it was, uh, that any such filling would have been uh, a nuisance at common law for the simple reason that it would, in effect, have eliminated the use of the wetland for fin and shellfish breeding and so on. What's, what's the significance of the nuisance finding? Judge Williams' decision was the one that talked Williams about nuisance. Yes, Your Honor. And he was referring to the consequences from the 18-acre fill. And specifically, if you look at the language of his decision, he talks about the impacts caused by nitrate pollution. Nitrates come from septic systems. However, as I said earlier, Mr. Palazzolo's Beach Club application would involve no septic systems. Because they were going to have portable toilets? That is correct, Your Honor. 
specifically to avoid any problems with septic systems or nitrates. No, but I, mean, I, don't, I don't want to reduce the case to something silly, but, I mean, is, is the takings claim predicated on the right uh, that in, in measuring the, the, the taking, uh, we should measure it on the assumption that he was somehow reasonably bound to be allowed uh, to, to build a beach club with nothing but portable sanitation? Is, is that, in effect, the, the, the kind of uh, baseline for the claim? Not precisely, Your Honor. The baseline of our claim is that Mr. Palazzolo can make no use whatsoever of any of his wetland. Now, the issue of but what, do, what, what is the what is the basis upon which you claim that you have or should have a right to fill the wetland? Traditionally, in Rhode Island. One owning riparian property has always had the right to fill the wetland. Indeed, as our reply brief points out, this has been the law in Rhode Island for a century and a half. As the Supreme Court said below at pages A3 to A4, that as of the early 1960s, there was not even a permit requirement to fill wetland. All right. Now, let's let's assume that... At some point, the state says, well, this is causing damage. Uh, it's either going to cause pollution because of the nitrates or it's going to interfere with the, with the fisheries because things breed in the shallow waters and so on. Uh, is, is it your position, in effect, that if the state decides to regulate, to prohibit wetland filling, that it therefore is engaging in a taking of every piece of, of, of uh, wetland that a landowner might otherwise wish to fill? This would have to be looked at on a case-by-case basis. No, but that, is that the assumption of, of your claim here, that, that you used to have a right to fill any wetland, and regardless of what the reason for the state saying you no longer can do that, that is a taking? Not precisely, Your Honor, because if the state is able to prove that the particular application before it would cause a nuisance, and by nuisance, talking about a genuine nuisance, not something decreed anew, not something that has not always but been unlawful. With, with, with respect, in, in other words, you're saying if it could prove the nuisance, then there would have been no change from the prior law. That is correct, Your Honor. All right. Now, they, now let's assume that it would never have been understood to be a nuisance at the prior law because nobody ever paid any attention to that. And, and they now say, well, we don't want nitrates to build up. We, we want fish to breed and so on. And, and that's the reason. Uh, is, is, is that the predicate for the taking claim? When talking about what is and what is not a nuisance, uh, it is important not to simply say that the law of nuisance is coterminous with the police power. In this case, it's not only that it was not a nuisance beforehand, but also that the state has not proven that the proposals by Mr. Palazzolo would indeed constitute a nuisance. It is not enough simply to say that we have new knowledge today and it is therefore a nuisance. The inquiry must be more searching than that. All right. Let me ask you a different question. Would, would it be a predicate for a taking claim for the state to pass a statute saying all dwellings, uh, all public accommodations uh, must, uh, must have modern plumbing with septic systems. It, with that, and, and in the past, that wasn't necessary. So uh, it naturally reduces the value of the land because it makes it more difficult, more expensive to develop. Would that be a predicate for a taking claim? 
Probably not, but again, we must well, look at the individual circumstances of the case. Why are the septic systems being required? If it is to prevent a genuine health and safety risk, then I would have to concur that that would be a regulation passed to protect public health and safety and may rise to the level of nuisance. No, I'm sorry. Sorry. All I'm getting at is it it sounds suspiciously to me as though that at least is what is involved or could have been involved, whether it was stated or not, when the state said, no, we're not going to let you build a beach club without any plumbing. Uh, and if the alternative was pollution by any plumbing system that, that went in because of runoff from the septic system, or a beach club with no plumbing at all and, in effect, modern outhouses, that seems to me a weak basis for a takings claim. And if that's not what we're concerned with, I want you to explain it to me. The State Supreme Court did not, in this case, base its decision on the existence of a nuisance. Indeed, the finding of a nuisance was appealed to the State Supreme Court, and, and that can be found at pages 12 to 14 of Mr. Palazzolo's brief to the State Supreme Court, but the issue was never reached. They, they never reached it. They never reached it. This case is not based on the existence of a nuisance or the lack of a nuisance. Should, can I ask about the Beach Club? I thought after the Beach Club application, he came up with another application that was just, just to fill. No, Your Honor. Re- the Beach Club application was the last application. Was the second one. The first one was just to fill without Correct. any specification. Correct. And that was turned down. Correct. For, for what reason? It was turned down because it lacked specificity and because of some general concerns that it would impact the environment. But the uh, Specificity in, in what? Uh, the plans needed to have more detail in them, contour lines and things of that nature. Well, he didn't uh, say why he wanted to do the fill, did he? In the, application, in the application, he did not indicate why he wanted to do the fill. He wanted to move this on in a, a multi-step process. Why does he have to show why he wanted to, to do the fill? I mean, I, the only change was the fill. He said, I, you know, I got a swampland in front of me. I'd rather be able to walk on it. Does he have to say he's going to use it for a beach club? He does not, and we do not think so, Your Honor. Well, uh, do you know of any zoning authority in the United States that would allow a major filling without knowing what a structure was going to be put on it? I mean, it, I, I just don't think we well, we need to — I don't think we need to get in there because I think the Supreme Court of Rhode Island did uh, reach the issues that you wish to present to us. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, I think I have some question. They, they, they did say uh, that the owner hasn't sought permission for any use that would involve substantially less filling, but having left us with that lingering doubt, they then rush into the merits. That is correct, Your Honor. I I don't think this case needs to turn on the 18-acre application. Indeed, it was not even part of the complaint. I think the key here is understanding that no filling of any wetland would be allowed for any reason that was lawful under the local zoning code. No structures of any kind would be permitted by Mr. Palazzolo to construct. So we know that he cannot use his wetland. Uh, for that reason, there is... What, what portion of his what, 18 acres is it? What portion is wetland and what portion upland? The 18 acres is all wetland. The upland portion is the small road that I referred to earlier with the turnaround. There may be an isolated island of uh, upland, this amount unspecified how much, but it is fairly small. Uh, that is surrounded by wetlands. Small so, compared to the 18 acres. And, indeed, small compared to the total size of that road 
and the turnaround on that. And we assume well. 20 acres, of which 18 is wetlands? The court never concluded that it was 20 acres, and it is probably less than that, but I cannot be more specific than that. Uh, since we know what uses can and cannot be made with the property, uh, the primary question that is of concern to us is whether or not the existence of regulations in 1978, when Mr. Palazzolo acquired the property, is sufficient to deny him the ability to challenge the, either the application of those regulations or challenge the impact of those regulations upon him if he contends that that is a regulatory taking. We certainly know that Shore Gardens Incorporated had, from 1971 until the time it was dissolved in 1978, the right to apply for permits and the right to bring a takings claim if those permits were denied. To suggest that the state can deny a permit and refuse somebody even the right to seek just compensation because they acquired the property from a predecessor is contrary to what this court had held earlier in Nolan, uh, which I do not need to repeat the entire site, except this court did say briefly, so long as the commission could not have deprived prior owners of the easement without compensating them, the prior owners must be understood to have transferred their full property rights in conveying the lot. May I ask one one very brief question? In your opinion, when did the taking occur in this case? The taking occurred in 1986 when the permit was denied. The taking was simply not in existence until that time, because as we also pointed out on our briefs, this Court has held in pre-salt that the existence of a permitting requirement in and of itself does not generally take property. One expects that the government, in good faith, will allow a permit to be granted or will at least consider that permit fairly. And one further expects that in the event that a permit is denied, at the time of denial, a litigant has the right to seek a just compensation remedy if the litigant can prove that there has been a taking. Mr. Burling, if, if, if rights to land use pass from owner to owner like that, how far back does the chain go? I mean, it seems to me that there's no logical stopping place until you get back to Roger Williams and the, and the 17th century settlement. So uh, where do we draw the line? There are two answers to that, Your Honor, a theoretical one and a practical one to this case. Theoretically, in defining what background principles, I would suggest that we would go back as far in time as before there was an existence of pervasive regulation. But that rather theoretical issue is one that this Court does not need to fully address because, as we pointed out, In our brief, and as I said previously, as of the early 1960s, there was absolutely no requirement for a litigant to obtain a permit to fill wetland. We also know in the century and a half before that that there was a right not only to fill wetland, but to fill tidelands, which are those lands that are underwater all the time. The Rhode Island. Were those rights still extant in 1985? That's the key here, Your Honor. The question is. What? I believe, obviously, the answer is yes, those rights still do exist. Now, no, those no, rights not still do exist. Did they exist in 1985? Yes, Your Honor. They existed in 1985 because the imposition of a permitting requirement that was adopted in 1971, as I said earlier, does not 
effect the background principles of property law. It does not change the title. It simply requires a landowner to go through more of a permitting process. It requires a landowner to uh, be more careful about what that landowner is trying to do. But it May I ask uh, the extent to which it affects the reasonable uh, investment expectations of someone who buys property uh, with regulations already in existence, so that when you buy the property, you know to develop this, it's going to be a tough uphill battle, because I know what's on the books and I know how they've treated them. You certainly, when you buy property and it's subject to regulation, you have the expectations that is going to be uh, more of a difficulty to develop that property. But I do not believe that that affects the background principles of the very property itself. The regulation that you are challenging in a takings case cannot so affect background principles that you have no right to bring that takings challenge in the first place. Okay. Why doesn't the same argument apply to a normal zoning setback requirement? It would not unless you are arguing that that zoning setback requirement itself is so onerous that it takes property. Now, that is normally... not the case. You know, that's a, but, the, but that's, a, that's a different question. The, 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 the ultimate question of the taking, uh, it seems to me, is separate from the question of what background principles are supposed to apply to define how you calculate the taking. And, and I, I suppose that if the, if the background principle of filling wetland cannot be tampered with, in effect, uh, by, by new wetland regulation, then the background principle of being able to build the property line cannot be tampered with by a setback requirement. I mean, I, is, is that correct? So, land, so far as calculating the basis for taking. Not precisely, Your Honor, because land is always subject nowadays, especially, to well, some degree well, of regulation. Why, why not nowadays? precisely? Would, would you, you would not have any problem with saying that there's a taking if you have a setback requirement of 900 yards on a lot that is 901 yards wide. If it's so Would extreme, that trouble you to say that that's a taking? That would be a taking, Your Honor. What about a reasonable setback requirement? Don't build within 10 feet of the property line on a lot that may be no wider than 60 feet. That would be a reasonable setback requirement, wouldn't it? A reasonable setback requirement is acceptable. All right. Why isn't a reasonable coastal zone uh, limitation on filling acceptable? Why does that have to be taken as a per se pullback on pre-existing property rights and, as such, the baseline for a taking. The property interest that may be affected by a reasonable coastal regulation or a reasonable setback is not necessarily a taking. But when it comes so to... So why isn't there then a question here as to whether this set of fill regulations is reasonable or unreasonable? Could, could I you're, understand what you're saying? What you mean by the word reasonable? I mean, let, let's take a 60-yard a sixty setback requirement, or 60-foot setback requirement. I guess that's reasonable, as opposed to 900-yard ones. Would that be a taking of, of a lot that happens to be only 61 feet wide? Absolutely, Your Honor. And would it be a reasonable setback requirement? I suppose it would. And, but you'd still say it would be a taking. Oh, so I better redefine reasonable, Your Honor. If the setback is so much that it destroys the economically viable use of the property, that would be unreasonable, that would be a taking. So what is, what is reasonable, then, is going to be determined in relation simply to the economics of what came before and what came after. 
I, that, think, I don't think you want to take that when, position. When we're, talking, when we're talking about the reasonableness of a setback, I think the best analysis that I have seen is the one adopted by a lower Pennsylvania court in a case we cited in our reply brief called Machapongo, uh, based on an article by Fee in the Chicago Law Review. Uh, that sets a standard that you look at the amount of area put in that particular setback, and if that area is so large and that area by itself would be an economically viable use of property if you could put it to some use regardless of the surrounding property, that might indeed be a taking. But what do you look to the reasons for the state regulation? As with the requirement that you do not commit a nuisance? Of course. But simply and, saying and that — And do you look at the reasons for the state regulation for anything short of common law nuisance? In other words, is common law nuisance then going to be the baseline? In Lucas, this Court found that something that has not always been unlawful uh, is a lawful use of the property and that as we — you know, we certainly may learn — Regardless of what we may in the meantime have learned. Mm -hmm. No, Your Honor, in Lucas, this Court also said that new knowledge, such as building that reactor on the nuclear fault, uh, is the new knowledge, and to prohibit that certainly would not be a taking. Mr. Burling, it it, it is not your submission that — those uh, those actions by the government are only takings which are unreasonable. Surely the correct, government can make a reasonable taking, can it? Oh, government regulates all the time. That is reasonable. To whether it's reasonable has nothing at all to do with whether it's a taking, does it? You're, you are correct. Your then point. I guess you're going to have to come up with some other criterion. I fed you the word reasonable because I thought that probably was what we were going to end up talking about. But you're going to have to come up with some other criterion for what passes muster and what doesn't pass muster. And you said to us that it's not a purely economic calculation. And you said to us that it's not purely a matter of using existing nuisance law as a baseline. So if it's not going to be some concept of reasonable regulation that looks to the reasons why the government did it and when it did it, what are we going to look at to draw this line, which I think you assume has to be drawn? As quickly as I can say, before I reserve my time for rebuttal, this case, in determining whether there has actually been a taking here, should be remanded to the Rhode Island court. The Rhode Island court found that simply some value left was not a taking. So what the court must look at is truly not simply whether this falls outside the exceptional circumstance of Lucas and say if it falls outside the exceptional circumstance, there is no taking. It must look at the before and after position of the property. It must look at the fair market value, the uses of the property, the aerial extent of the property that could be used, and those other things that an investor would look at for the regulation. Should the court look at that? If the court, uh, not in the first analysis, but if the court is not able to determine that there has been a denial of economically viable use, then in a Penn Central analysis, which I think is the next place that a court should look at, certainly the character of the government regulation is one of those things that this court said in Penn Central should be looked at. map of this property, because we talked about this property and the uses to which it could be put. I didn't see in the record uh, a a map showing exactly what Mr. Um, Palazzolo's property was. I believe, Your Honor, that in the joint lodging that there is a uh, map of some sort of the property at tab 5, and you can see it on tab six. And in this will the, solve the problem about how much, whether there was room in the what they call the upland for one house or 
three or four? No, Your Honor, those maps are not very precise. What we simply, on determining how much land must be uh, subject to that requirement of, of how much you can build, are you I would like you have no exact map of the property in question? There is no map that shows precisely where wetlands are and uplands are, but we will rest on the State's assertion in its opposition to the petition, as Justice Souter pointed out earlier, that the State would allow one home to be built on the upland area. I would like M- to — Mr. Berlin, you've had a number of questions. I'm going to extend your time by five minutes. I will extend respondents' time by five minutes. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, I will reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. General Whitehouse. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I would like to open by addressing two questions that Justice Souter raised. Um, The first is a rather technical one having to do with the effect on the pond uh, of the nuisance and the cause. And I would refer you, Your Honor, uh, in the uh, petition for it of certiorari to page appendix B10, in which the Rhode Island Superior Court found that the 12 percent loss of the total salt marsh filtering in the Winnipeg Pond will have a significant detrimental impact on the existing salt marsh and went on from there to reach the nuisance conclusion. It did not have to do with the ISDS system, and that was based on testimony that was in the record about the fact that there are nitrates and things that wash into this pond, and the wetland itself is the mechanism that filters those nitrates out. And so simply the removal and filling of those wetlands per se was the basis for justice. The Supreme Court in Rhode Island did not rely on that. They didn't speak to it one way or the other, Mr. Can we take the case on the assumption that the only likely permitted use uh, of the property in question is to build one residence on the upland area, leaving the 18 or so uh, wetlands area unimproved. I do not believe, Justice Kennedy, that that would be consistent with the decisions of either the Rhode Island Superior Court or the Rhode Island Supreme Court, which both indicated that there were additional economically viable uses available, and they did not refer to those as the building of a house. Well, it seems to me odd, then, that they would get to the question of uh, Lucas taking, etc. Well, there are three categories of information here. There is the established, and what we referenced, Your Honor, in our uh, memorandum in opposition, there is the established and established in the Superior Court uh, proposition that at least one house worth at least $200,000 can be built. Then there is the uncertainty as to what additional upland there is and how many other houses can be built. Did you reference that in your brief in opposition? I mean, that might have made a big difference as to whether we wanted to take this case. Did you make any reference to the fact that there was uncertainty as to how much uh, additional use could be made of the property? No, Your Honor. Well, I think it's too late now. Well, well you didn't the third say. piece of... I'm sorry, I, I want the answer to that. I, I just that, that's why I read the, the the part that Justice Scalia cited earlier. Yes, you do say a portion of the site would have been approved as a single home site. Correct. Which is true. Which is true. But you don't say whether other things might also have been approved. Correct. Because right. there, now, that's the uncertainty he's, area. he's right, though, in 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 saying that in reading it, one might have thought 
that all what we're talking about is it's been established that this could be used just for a single home, and that's it. And now the argument comes back when it's fully argued. Well, it maybe could have been up to four homes. Maybe they could have done some other things. He never applied, etc. So what are we supposed to do? It has been established that it can be used as at least one single-family home, and that was what I intended to refer to. And it has not been established, because of the unripeness problems in this case, what further development might be permissible. And to get back to the question about Lucas, that's significant because the Court addressed the valuelessness issue and found that there was substantial value there. And if Lucas is seen as a pure valuelessness case, then that would appear to settle the question. But there is also discussion in Lucas about what Justice Scalia called the deprivation fraction. And that would appear to require a more complex analysis than was required in Lucas, where you had the finding of valuelessness from the court below as opposed to a finding from the courts below here of value. Well, is it, that it, founders? Is it your position, General White House, that if someone has, say, a, a, a section of land, a square mile, either in a square mile, and picks out a 10-acre plot at one edge of that and applies for zoning use and claims that it's denied, uh, he claims I've been denied all economic use, that the fact that he has a remaining everything square mile minus 10 acres means that he that has to be taken into consideration too? Yes, I think it is, Your Honor. I, I, think, I don't think our cases support that. Well, the most recent, I, I would go back to, for instance, at the earliest expression, the Penn Central case, which used the term parcel as a whole and from which the parcel as a whole discussion has emerged. And then most recently in Justice Scalia's concurring opinion in the Sudom decision, he referred to the relevant property as the aggregation of all the owner's property subject to the regulation, at least we, we don't those that are contiguous. Our, we don't generally get our law out of concurring opinions. In, in That's the, correct, Your Honor, it, but it, I believe it, but, it, but it was but in, in the Chief's hypothetical, what if, what if he then sells off all except the 10-acre uh, the plot and then reapplies, and the 10-acre plot is again denied to development? Then, then there's been a taking. I mean, it's, it's such a silly result. That well, I'm not sure there, that there, there is not in the first case because he hasn't yet sold off the rest of the one square mile. But if he sells off the rest of the one square mile and makes the very same application, gets the very same result, then there's been a taking. I mean, that seems to me very strange. We always face in these takings cases the problem of whether it is the regulation itself that has effected the taking or whether property interests have been arranged in such a way as to create a valuelessness portion. And I think without knowing more about the facts behind an example like that, it could fall into either category. And I think that's why um, it's, an, it's an important distinction. Um, I'd like to focus a moment on the, on the ripeness issues that the Rhode Island Supreme Court raised. And the first has to do, they found, obviously, that this case was unripe on two grounds. And the first ground was that there had been no application for the 74-unit subdivision. And that, to us, makes perfect sense because in the Rhode Island courts, unlike in this court, petitioner presented that 74-unit subdivision as a proposal and not as a claim of value uh, for 
determining the size of the taking. And so that is very likely responsive to the argument made to that court that this was a proposal. And even if it was not responsive to that, I would argue, even if they were asserting a proposition of Rhode Island ripeness law uh, that we want in Rhode Island to have people, when they come and apply for a use or come and make a takings claim for a particular use, to have applied for that same use at some point. And in this case... Even when they've made it clear, we are not going to allow you to fill this for anything unless the public at large uh, benefits from it. I, I mean, I, why do you have to keep coming back? Would you approve this? No, we will never approve any fill. Oh, would you approve this? No, we will never approve any fill. Why does he have to keep coming back? The critical word, Your Honor, in your question was this. And the question, if this is the wetland, then you're correct. But if this is his property, then you have to look, because because the takings determination looks at value, you have to look at what remaining value there is. Somebody can insist on applying for apartment buildings, amusement parks, everything in the world in a residential development and be told no over and over and over again. And there can still be value in that property. It's just never been applied for. And that's the case here. There is value in this property. How do we you, you mean the part that's not wetland, you're the saying? The part that's not wetland, absolutely. And well, the part that is — Let me ask you a question about the geography here. I've been looking at tab six. Yes. Is the uplands — is the wetlands between the uplands and the ocean? In other words, would a person with a house in the uplands have the same view of the ocean if something were built in the wetlands? Let me start at the ocean. You start at the Atlantic Ocean, and you come up the beach, and at the top of the beach is Atlantic Avenue. On the other side of Atlantic Avenue, the predecessor parcel to this parcel began. And a prior owner, Edgemere Realty, who has nothing to do with this case, sold off all the lots along Atlantic Avenue, which would be consistent with the pattern of development that the aerial photographs show. On showed. both sides of Atlantic Avenue or just on the, on the seaward side? Or the they only owned on the pondward side. Pondward. And they sold off that first layer of development that is consistent with the development pattern up and down that area. Then comes SGI, and it owns the land behind that on the pondward side. And they make 11 sales, five of which come back, six net sales. Four of those sales now have houses standing on them. At that point, SGI fails to file its proper papers with the Secretary of State's office. The property transfers by operation of law to uh, Mr. Palazzolo, and now he applies only to fill the remaining wetlands in what is really a third-generation remainder of a parcel. And the There is no evidence coming out of the administrative proceedings because of the way in which the filing was made about where the value is. All of the value testimony in this case comes out of the case in the Superior Court. Well, do you think think cases like Williamson County and some of those others leave the states completely free to exact whatever they want and and what you might call procedural requirements for zoning? No, I do not think so. I think that um, examples like what the Court saw in Del Monte Dunes suggest that, you know, there can be overbearing uh, by state regulators. And, Your Honor, to the extent that there is a sort of uh, general rule about prior regulation being a bar, I think that there are some of these cases, um, neither in Del Monte Dunes nor in McDonald, that this Court 
inquire as to the order in which the acquisition and the regulation occurred. In every other case, you have a prior regulation and a subsequent acquisition. And I think the reason is because they were looking at what the, administ- the agency was actually doing. Were they obstructing? Were they being a nuisance? Was, this, was, was there futility? And there, it's a, it's, I think it's a separate question. Does that answer your question? Uh, you, yes, you, you have answered it. Uh, do, yeah. do you think at some point uh, the, the, the state or the governmental agency has the obligation to come forward and say what it will allow? That may be if you have a situation in which the entire parcel is put before that agency so that it can make a sensible decision. In a nutshell, Your Honor, the ripeness problem in this case isn't an exhaustion of remedies type ripeness problem. We do not assert that Mr. Palazzolo has left something undone procedurally in this case. We assert that he only put his most heavily burdened property into the administrative process, and there was and could be no inquiry as to what value there was. And that, to us, seems a recipe for uh, the prospect of uh, manufacturing takings. If you can isolate the portion of your property that is not valuable or that is not buildable and apply only as to that and not show the regulators or discuss with the regulators property that you can perfectly well build on, you put them in an impossible situation. What other property? I mean, property in New York, uh, you know, property would, adjacent. You know, I, some of the theories of what, what the, what is it, the denominator is in these taking cases, some of those theories, uh, in, in fact, urged, urged by your brother in this case, uh, say that uh, the test is whether the area that remains after what has been taken has, uh, um, has any, uh, in isolation, valuable use. If you apply that kind of a theory, it wouldn't matter whether you applied only for the, uh, for the portion that, uh, that they've denied the permit on. But in this case, the record below in the findings of the courts is that there is valuable use there and perhaps a good deal of valuable not, not use. Not the swampland, not, not the part he wanted to fill. You, you acknowledge that there is no feasible economic use of, the, of the, the, the part that is not filled. I would argue that he would almost certainly never be permitted to fill it for residential subdivision purposes. Or, and, and that, or, for, or for any other purpose. You think for any other purpose? Any other be, purpose it would that, be very, very hard. That, that would enable any feasible economic use. It well, would be very, very hard. There is testimony, Your Honor, that it's worth $7,000 an acre as an amenity value okay. to the existing uplands. So you're they making it together. essential to your case that in, a, in determining the, uh, the taking, we must look at the whole parcel and cannot restrict ourselves to, uh, to the wetlands portion whose development has been forbidden. Well, I think... I'm, I'm trying to make a narrower point, Your Honor, okay, which I'm, is I that you then. for ripeness purposes, which was what I was intending to be talking about, the, um, the parcel that is brought forward to the regulators should be yeah. the whole parcel so that they can make an assessment of what the value is. And when you can't, you leave the numerator and the denominator uncertain. But the two questions are the same. I mean, what you need for ripeness depends on what you need to find a taking. And, and if all you need to find a uh, taking is that the wetlands couldn't be used for anything, then it didn't matter that he applied for nothing but the wetlands. I, I think the two are connected. If the test of a taking 
is the value that is left in the property after the application of the challenge regulation, then you have to know that value. It is ipso facto always going to be 100 percent as to the burden part of the parcel. And that's precisely our point here. There's a whole parcel violation that underlies the ripeness problem. You have to know the value of the property, but the question is what property? What property? If the property is only the wetlands, all you have to know is — and we know that it isn't in this case. Then, no. then you're saying, in my, my hy- hypothesis of an entire section of land, a developer fences off 10 acres, that when he's turned down for 10 acres saying no use at all, that not only is there no — but it's not even right. He has to come back with some proposal for developing the rest of the land. Well, ripeness is a somewhat discretionary doctrine. And there may be facts in which it can become ripe. And a court, as this court did in Lucas, can find and ripen a case in which there hasn't been a formal application made for the use. But in this case, the Rhode Island court was presented with a very difficult situation. It was presented with a case in which the record contained nothing about the value of the property well, but I thought you said from the administrative record. that the wetlands had a value of $7,000 an acre. But that wasn't determinable from the administrative record. Well, that's determined from the trial record. From the trial record. Isn't, isn't the problem here, I mean, we probably would all agree that your first proposition, that you may not simply isolate from the parcel the one unusable portion, define that as a separate possible parcel, call it a 100 percent taking and, and go home free. Correct. Uh, at the other extreme, there's got to be some limit to the parcel that you use for defining value or somebody, you know, with, uh, you know, 100 square miles uh, can, can have, uh, in effect, no way of, of, of ever proving a taking, even though by most of our lights the taking might, might be extensive on some portion. But, and our problem is, how do you define parcel? Is there any way to do it? I'm not sure that it's raised by this case, but, I mean, we're getting into it. Is there any way to do it other than by some reference to normal commercial usage in the area? What, when people, for example, characteristically define, apply for subdivision regulations, uh, for subdivision approval, what is the size of the land that they tend to group as one parcel and apply for approval for? Don't we have to look to some standard of what is standard commercial usage to know how to define, how reasonably to define a parcel? Let me first — I'm not sure that I would agree with your premise first. If somebody owns a 10,000-acre ranch and they're forbidden from — building in a wetland on the corner of that ranch, and they isolate that wetland through a variety of corporate devices and then claim that they've had a taking, I would say that first that is not a taking because the entity's interests should be looked at entirely, certainly as Justice — I will will agree with you. Let's say in in your example that they say, well, the, the appropriate parcel is the wetland plus one acre. Mm-hmm. And the government says, no, it's the wetland plus the, the remaining 10,000 acres minus the wetland. Uh, perhaps neither of those uh, is, is acceptable. But perhaps we would look to the usage in the area to determine, you know, what, 
what are the what's the range of developable developable parcels about which we can assume the government was regulating? Maybe in Texas it would be 10,000 acres. Maybe in Manhattan uh, it would be the one acre. But don't we have to look to some criterion of usage to determine what is a reasonable basis for defining a parcel in order to make the calculation? I think that it, the, the uh, argument could become so extravagant that you got to the point of having to define those, use, the, those, those parcels. But I think the ordinary definition will come from the chain of title of the property. Parcel is what you thought it was reasonable to buy. It's what you got. Yeah. And in the long run, I mean, this case presents an interesting situation. If all of the upland ends up getting sold off by Mr. Palazzolo, and now he's left with nothing but his wetlands, now we do face that question very directly, because there isn't the unripeness of the value determination. We're there. And I think in that circumstance, because of what the takings clause is about, you have to be able to look to the history of that parcel. We can't have a situation in which you can whittle your way down to the only thing you can't build on and then claim it as a taking. Could you address it? Everything's been whittled down from Lord Fairfax. I mean, in Virginia, anyway. Uh, Nobody would be able to make a, a, a takings claim. I didn't mean... That's a very extravagant proposition. Of course, the properties, everything's been whittled down. I guess what I'm trying to say is that a particular parcel once defined within a single owner, if there's a heavily burdened portion of that parcel, and then over time it gets whittled down to, you should be able to look back to some point in time Arguably, the owner, at the time that the challenge regulation went into effect, and define the parcel thusly. I'm curious on a different issue, which, if we get to it, I'm having trouble with. Yes. And that is, does a takings claim run with the land? And I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. What, what I found difficult is both sides of briefs had pretty good arguments. And uh, I can see the, the horribles that seem to occur either way, the gas station with the land dumped on it on the one hand or the people going up and buying old claims at the other. And so I wondered, uh, in your opinion, would it work to say it does run with the land, but no one can recover more than his investment-backed expectation? That is to say, if somebody goes and buys cheap land with an already existing taking claims, They will not benefit from that because they could not recover more in fairness than what they paid for the land minus the value of the land for all other purposes. Now, what I I, I want to see if that's a — I mean, there's some suggestion of that, but I I want to know how to decide that issue just in case we get to it. And it is a very hard issue, in my opinion. My argument would be that it does not — Run with the land. Period. Period. Or what do you do, what do you do with the gas station where some old map is around, uh, and because the person didn't check the title perfectly or didn't know what to do, lo and behold, he wakes up and he discovers 400 cubic yards of dirt uh, thrown all over his property, making it unusable. And, and they say, oh, three generations back, there was a map filed somewhere that said maybe uh, the, the city would have an ability to do that. You know what I'm talking about. That seemed a very appealing hypothetical. Yeah. yeah. My argument is that you have to look at the 
timing of the acquisition. You have to look at who owned it. You have to look at the state law of whether things are transferable in that kind of transfer or not. I'm not saying that you you can never go back. And in-house, we've been talking about what, you know, what would have happened if Mrs. Sudam had died at the last minute. Would her estate not arguably have been, it would be fair to have a claim under those circumstances. Um, Do you know and I think the best way to argue that is under Penn Central. And this was a Lucas case, and that's why the Court didn't quite get to it. May I ask you when in your, your opponent says the taking occurred in 1986, when in your opinion did the State prevent the uh, wetlands from being filled? When did the really, legal option Your Honor, since time right. immemorial, and I have, to, I have to disagree with my brother's assertion that there is a right to fill in Rhode Island. When, when do you think that ended? Do you think there never was one? Never was one. Never has been. And the cases that he searched for the alternative proposition, Yates versus Milwaukee and the series of Rhode Island decisions, are all cases that involve a harbor line. And the way this law works, as the Court knows, is that you have no right to fill out. It is the state's property, and it's subject to the state's control and regulation. And one way in which the state lets you know that you can and gives its assent is by establishing a harbor line. And when it establishes that harbor line, then you can build out to it. But always, always, always. And uh, there's one other point, which is that you do have a common law right to wharf out or build out into the wetlands as against your neighbor, as against the rest of the world. But you don't as against the state, because the state, from the very first day in Rhode Island, has owned all of its wetlands in fee, and still does to this day. The public trust doctrine is alive and well in Rhode Island. My time is up. Thank you, General Whitehouse. Mr. Stewart, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, as this Court stated in Armstrong v. United States, the Just Compensation Clause was designed to bar government from forcing some people alone to bear public burdens which, in all fairness and justice, should be borne by the public as a whole. And Petitioner's regulatory takings claim necessarily depends upon the proposition that he has been unfairly singled out to bear a disproportionate share of the burdens attendant on the provision of public benefits or the prevention of public harms. And in our view, the record entirely fails to bear out that assertion. Well, he's relying on the Just Compensation Clause, and Armstrong isn't the only case construing the Just Compensation Clause. No, that's, that's correct. And certainly this Court in Lucas made clear that even when there is no exercise of eminent domain authority or physical occupation of the land, there may be a taking if the burden imposed by regulatory uh, limitations on land use has the same practical effect as a direct appropriation. The case is somewhat like Lucas, it seems to me, in that other landowners who got there first were left alone and then the wetlands people got into the act. Or am I wrong in that conclusion? I, I think that is incorrect. At, at least in our view, the record in this case strongly supports the assertion that filling of wetlands has been a a very rare practice in this part of Rhode Island. Now, it's true that it wasn't until comparatively recently that statutory permit requirements were imposed uh, as a prerequisite to the fill of wetlands. But the record doesn't suggest that extensive filling of wetlands has occurred. Now, my understanding is that even as to the dry land in this area, it is only a short distance above the, the water 
table. And therefore, even to construct a house on, on dry beach land, you need fill. But it's not fill of wetlands, and it doesn't have the same environmental consequences as wetlands fill. And, and the point we'd like to stress is that this is a gen- that the requirements imposed most recently by the CRMP and informally by its predecessors are generally applicable limitations on the ways in which wetlands properties can be used, and they secure a reciprocity of advantage to landowners in the vicinity. So it's easy to say on the one hand that the Coastal Resources Management Plan hurts Mr. Palazzolo in one sense, in that it limits the uses that he can make of the wetlands portion of his property. But at the same time, the fact that those prohibitions are imposed on his neighbors as well tends to benefit Mr. Palazzolo insofar as his tract also includes an uplands area, because presumably the prevention of filling by neighbors preserves the quality of the environmental resources in the area, uh, most notably Winnipeg Pond. And in practical effect, uh, the restrictions function as a sort of density re- restriction. That how is, do we, how do we know what size of the property to look at in uh, looking at this takings claim? Can we look just at the wetlands? I, I don't which think is what his application dealt with. I, I don't think we can, uh, Justice O'Connor, and for for one reason, I think. Well, why and what principle governs? I think the short answer is that as the case comes to this court, I think the petitioner has really given up any claim that the wetlands portion of the property constitutes a separate parcel, because the third question presented was — It didn't sound like it today. I I, I agree that the argument has — that the the point has been raised at oral argument, but the third question presented in the cert petition was — Whether the remaining permissible uses of regulated property are economically viable. Right. Merely because the property retains a value greater than zero. And and the explication in the body of the petition of that third question presented made it clear that Mr. Palazzolo was not claiming the wetlands portion constitute a separate parcel and the value of that is zero. Rather, the basis of the takings claim as it came to the court in the cert petition was that the parcel as a whole had a value of only $200,000 and that that value was so small in comparison to the the purported $3 million figure as to amount to a total deprivation of economically beneficial use. I I think even if the point hadn't been weighed, there would be strong arguments for regarding this all as a single parcel. It was bought together. It was platted together. And the the state's appraiser testified, and his testimony was credited by the, the trier of fact, that the presence of wetland areas, even if they couldn't be separately developed, would enhance the value of a home constructed on the uplands area in the sense that a house constructed on a 20-acre parcel is going to be more valuable than a house constructed on a two-acre plot because you have open space, you have a feeling of privacy and seclusion. I think it's also important to recognize that the original investment in this property was something less than $13,000. That is, I say something less because SGI purchased a larger parcel for $13,000 partly in 1959 and partly in 1969, sold portions of it for prices that aren't revealed in the record. So if Mr. Palazzolo or his his predecessor SGI put in $13,000 and now has something worth $200,000, he's hardly been — had anything taken from him. Well, I I, I really think that, that's no, irrelevant, that's and that's the Justice Breyer suggested there should be a cap. That assumes the government doesn't have to be reasonable on an ongoing basis. I think that's just wrong. Well, the other point we would make about the $3 million figure is it's very important to, to realize exactly what the $3 million figure means. 
Petitioner's appraiser, in, in arriving at the $3 million figure, looked at a nearby tract, presumably on uplands, and said, that lot sold for $125,000. And he said, the lots that could be constructed out of wetlands are com- could be made comparable to that. And if you sold 74 of them at $125,000 each, uh, you would come up with a figure of a little over $9 million. He deducted the expenses that he thought would be incurred in actually doing the fill and came up with a net of three million. Mr. Stewart, uh, supposing I buy an acre of, bought an acre of land out in Tyson's Corner for, uh, $15,000 in 1959. Now it's appraised at a million dollars, and the government comes on and says, well, look, you only paid 15000 for that. We ought to take that into consideration, deciding whether it's been, what's been taken. I agree. If, if Mr. Palazzolo could ever identify a point in time at which the property was worth $3 million, then we would have a very different case. Well, but we're, we're not taking it on the assumption it's worth three, $3 million, certainly not the proof, because it hasn't been proven. But my hypothesis to you is the, it is uh, my property at one acre is now appraised at a million dollars. The point I was making is, in your hypothetical, the land would have actually been valued at $1 million in the w- real world today. But if you look at the methodology, that was uh, addressed by Mr. Palazzolo's, Palazzolo's appraiser. He took as his starting point the price that was paid for a comparable lot in 1988. Now, obviously, that price was paid in an environment where wetlands development in this region is subject to substantial restrictions. So, in effect, what the appraiser was determining was if Mr. Palazzolo could develop his property to the hilt, and everybody else around him remains subject to extensive restrictions on development, his property would dramatically appreciate in value. Even if we assume that the appraiser was correct in that hypothesis, it can't form the basis of a takings claim. Mr. Palazzolo is essentially asking to have the benefit uh, that arises as a result of the imposition of development restrictions on neighbors uh, without accepting the same development restrictions. Well, on that adults. just has to do with admissibility of comparable value testimony. What, what, what is your position on the question Justice Breyer asked regarding the rights of successive owners? I, I think, at least in general, our position would be that a person who takes with notice of an existing restriction on land use uh, can't show a taking by virtue of the application of that restriction. If you're going to do that completely 100 percent, what do you do about the gas station? I am not sure that I understand. The you know, in the briefs they have, I don't want to go into it, it's too long. But the person sold his gas station years ago, and at that time there was a, a map somewhere in the city council, and it showed that the highway that went by was subject to some kind of support. And years later, the third owner finds one day his gas station is under dirt because they said it's time to have the support. And, and he wanted to claim that first. You, if you're not I, familiar I, with it, I, I mean, there, there take could, my word, there could be very unfair things that happen as a result of an absolute rule. I, I mean, I th- and I think the, the, the word unfair is crucial here. That is, there could be circumstances. You, that's what you replied to Justice Kennedy by saying that the claim, a valid ripe takings claim, does not, or a valid takings claim, does not run with the land no matter what. Well, I think I said ordinarily a person who takes with notice of an existing right. what goes into that ordinarily? Well, I, I think, think of this. There's a poor little old widow woman who owns it, and she can't possibly develop it or deal with it, and she puts it on the market. And somebody comes along and knows the regulation is there, but says, look, that regulation is going to have to be applied in a reasonable manner. I'm going to pay you. X amount for this property and then challenge it. 
I mean, what's the matter with that? I mean, certainly the person could challenge it if, if the nature of the challenge was this is an unreasonable regulation, it's not lawful. But if the challenge was this is reasonable, but it forces me to bear a disproportionate share of the burdens, and therefore I'm entitled to be compensated, we don't think that there would be any well, equities it, on that. The buyer takes it expecting to have to make a Penn Central type uh, takings challenge. I, I mean, again, the, the pur- purpose of the regulatory takings doctrine is to identify those situations in which an individual has been. Thank you, Mr. Stewart. Mr. Burling, you have seven minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. A few points to, to, to rebut was just said. I think that when we look at what property has been taken and, and what property has not been taken, we're talking about are we only going to look at the wetlands or are we only going to look at the upland? Our, our case is, is submitted on the idea that there are many ways of determining whether or not there has been a denial of economically viable use and whether or not there has been a taking. It may be that in some cases we're dealing simply with a large parcel and we're looking at the devaluation of that parcel. With some cases, it may be that we're dealing as here with a situation where some of the uh, land is carved out and you're told you can use some of it, but the vast majority that you cannot. The problem of what happened in the court below is that they did not go through any sort of uh, realistic analysis on of whether or not there's been a taking, simply finding that there was some value left at the end of the day, therefore it doesn't fit within Lucas. Is, uh, what are we talking about? Because the court below, immediately below, said the claim wasn't right. Excuse me, Your Honor, I didn't hear the first part of your question. I thought that the decision we were reviewing is one that was on ripeness, not that there's no claim. The first court, the court of first instance, said this was a nuisance. There are three independent grounds in the decision below. One ground, of course, is that the case was not ripe, and I think we've talked about that. The other, that he bought the property on notice of the existence of the regulation. And third, the Court did look at the fact that there was some value left in finding that the existence of some value took the case outside of the Lucas situation, and therefore it it did not need to uh, consider further whether or not there had been a denial of economically viable use. So the the Court below did reach all three of these issues and provide them as independent grounds for the the taking below. Uh, There was some discussion previously about what the value was and that the administrative agency did not discuss the value of the case. This, of course, is an issue for a trial court, and it is what trial courts determine all the time. Evidence was submitted as to the value of the property. Uh, rebuttal evidence was also submitted by the State as to the value of the trial. Let me ask you this. a very brief question on the value. In your third question, the value greater than zero, does that mean we should just assume there's a value greater than zero because the uplands has value, or do you assume for the purpose of the case that the wetlands also have value that enhances the value of the uplands? Either way, Your Honor. Uh, the 200000 figure does include a so-called $7,000 per acre attribution from the wetlands that cannot be used. Uh, I am not sure that that is a legitimate way of looking at the value of this property. If that remaining wetland belonged to the state, if it had been taken by the state, which is indeed what we assert here, uh, the value to the upland owner would be the same, whether or not title allegedly belonged to the owner or not. They're talking about the valley from a nice view. 
Uh, what we are saying is that nice view has been taken by the state. And so uh, the true value of what the upland is, if you do not add in this attribution, is probably significantly less than that. Indeed, in the trial transcript, in the testimony of Thomas Andolfo at pages 662 to 682 to 683 is where this $200,000 value comes from. It, it talks about a few dollars being spent to improve the road, and then primarily the rest of the value will come from this attribution of the remaining area. Well, the, under your view of the case, if, uh, if you lose because there's $200,000 worth of, of value and, and, and we hold that Lucas bars you, uh, then some later purchasers could, can just purchase 18 or so acres of wetlands and sue. A later purchaser of those 18 acres, uh, after attempting to go through the permitting process, may indeed be able to sue if, as the question said earlier, this area is within the economically viable size of development in the area. I think that is one way of looking at it. We certainly know that there are three home sites on fill in the immediately adjacent to Mr. Palazzolo's property, home sites that are very small, as, as the record reflects. And if there are 18 acres of developable property on site, then indeed uh, that should be looked at separately. But that is something I do not think this Court needs to fully determine what, that, what the situation would be in that hypothetical, because in this case, we know that Mr. Palazzolo can make no use of his wetland, and we know that his up, the value of the upland uh, should not be enough to simply take this case out of a determination of whether there has been economically viable use. Why not? Because in looking at economically viable use, an appropriate way of looking at it would be what would an investor looking at the property before it is regulated be willing to pay uh, if he knew what that property was worth at the end of the day? As I said earlier — I suppose he would pay $200,000. If an investor would pay $200,000 — for this property, that is a different case from what has been alleged below. No, no, but, no you said, I thought we were agreeing that the value of the 18. Oh, yes. The value is 200,000. And, and if, and if the, an investor, uh, knowing that this, before the regulations are imposed, that that is all the value of the property, uh, then indeed there may be a different cir- circumstance. That is why this case needs to be remanded. No, no, I'm, I'm trying to figure out Lucas versus Penn Central. Oh. I mean, why, why isn't that enough? Take everything in your favor. Uh, say you admit the property is worth two hundred thousand, and uh, then there's some testimony here that if the if 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 it might have been sold for three million, okay, still has two hundred thousand left. Why isn't that good enough? Go to Penn Central if you want some recovery. Because no reasonable investor would put three point one million. No, absolutely right. My question is why isn't two hundred thousand dollars enough to take it out of the total takings case? reduce value to zero, namely Lucas, and to throw it in the box, legal box marked Penn Central. Your Honor, we do not believe it is enough to take it out of that box. We believe that a non-zero value is not in and of itself enough to avoid a inquiry under Lucas. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you, Mr. Burling. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.